0: Tom Perota is the best-selling author of nine works of fiction, including Election and Little Children, both of which were made into Oscar-nominated films, and The Leftovers, which was adapted into a critically acclaimed Peabody award-winning HBO series. His other books include Bad Haircut, The Wishbones, Joe College, The Abstinence Teacher, Nine Inches, and his newest, Mrs. Fletcher. His work has been translated into a multitude of languages. Perota grew up in New Jersey and lives outside of Boston.
1: Tom Perota, welcome to The Creative Process.
0: Thank you, Mia.
2: Happy to be here.
1: And I'm so um, looking forward to this conversation. I've been a long admirer of your books and then also their adaptations to to film and television and you're going to share some of your writing now. I, I don't know which book it is. It's a surprise for me. So, what, what have you selected?
2: Um, so, I'm going to read uh, a brief section from *The Leftovers*. This is the character Tom Garvey. Um, he is the son who um, he is in college when the sudden departure, which is the apocalyptic event that triggers *The Leftovers*, when that happens, and um, this is his a brief glimpse of of the moment when he becomes aware of what's happened and, and his college comes to an end. And I, I was thinking about it mainly because, you know, we're in the midst of this pandemic and um, there was something similar happening where people had to get their lives interrupted, particularly um, college kids, you know, and, and come back home. And, and so I felt like it was, uh, this section is kind of apropos of our strange moment. Uh, Three years ago, when he first arrived at college, Tom had been just like everybody else. A normal American kid, a B plus student who wanted to major in business, pledge a cool frat, drink a ton of beer, and hook up with as many reasonably hot girls as possible. He felt homesick for the first couple of days, nostalgic for the familiar streets and buildings of Mapleton, his parents and sister, and all his old buddies scattered to institutions of higher learning all across the country. But he knew his sadness was temporary and even kind of healthy. It bothered him when he met other freshmen who spoke about their hometowns and sometimes their families with casual disdain as if they'd spent the first 18 years of their lives in prison and had finally busted out. The Saturday after classes began, He got drunk and went to a football game with a big gang from his floor. His face painted half orange and half blue. All the students were concentrated in one section of the domed stadium, roaring and chanting like a single organism. It was exhilarating to melt into the crowd like that, to feel his identity dissolving into something bigger and more powerful. The orange one and that night at a frat kegger He met a girl whose face was painted the same as his, went home with her, and discovered that college life exceeded his highest expectations. He could still vividly remember the feeling of walking home from her dorm as the sun came up, his shoes untied, his socks and boxers missing in action, the spontaneous high five he exchanged with a guy who staggered past him on the quad like a mirror image, the smack of their palms echoing triumphantly in the early morning silence. A month later, it was all over. School was canceled on October 15th. They were given seven days to pack up their stuff and vacate the campus. That final week existed in his memory as a blur of baffled farewells, the dorms slowly emptying, the muffled sound of someone crying behind a closed door, the soft curses people uttered as they pocketed their phones. There were a few desperate parties, one of which ended in a sickening brawl in a hastily arranged memorial service in the dome at which the chancellor solemnly recited the names of the university's victims of what people had just begun to call the sudden departure. The roll call included Tom's psych instructor and a girl from his English class who'd overdosed on sleeping pills after learning of the disappearance of her identical twin. He hadn't done anything wrong. But he remembered feeling a weird sense of shame, of personal failure, returning home so soon after he'd left, almost as if he'd flunked out or gotten expelled for disciplinary reasons. But there was comfort as well. The reassurance of returning to his family, finding them all present and accounted for. Well, thank
1: you. Yes, it certainly does have Resonance, even though that was written, you know, much before our current crisis. But yeah, I was wondering what your take would be on, you know, because we have a kind of collective crisis, and in your novels, uh, well, um, apart from the leftovers, but it's often the quiet or more individual crisis, you know. And uh, but what is it? What are you observing when you see, you know, everyone is going through it in different ways, but it's a, this kind of it's a stra- this strange. It's strange
2: time. Yeah, well, I think, you know, one of the things I noticed when I, you know, I haven't um, read that particular section in a while was, um, you know, Tom keeps thinking about being part of groups, you know, so when he's there at the, at the stadium, he's melding into this larger group, or when he sees this other guy walking on the path, and he feels like it's his mirror image, um, the girl has the same face paint, you know, he's looking for community and, and solidarity and that, you know, informs his arc throughout the the story of The Leftovers. I mean, I think the thing uh, right now is just, um, you know, we are literally locked down and, and some of us have, most of us have had to retreat into, you know, these very small units. At the same time, there are these huge protests going on, you know, and this, this dynamic between, um, you know, being isolated and, and wanting to um, be part of something large, it feels like really at the crux of, of this particular moment. And I'm very curious to know what our community will feel like when when we finally get freed of the limitations that, that are on us now.
1: And I was, I mean, it's kind of a tangent, but I was also surprised, I mean, America particularly has gone... Has in terms of the number of casualties, um, that surprised me. You know, uh, because I thought, and if you you know look to your novels, which are set in suburbia, I thought there is already a lot of distance between people, just physical distance that we don't have so much in Europe, right? And so I, that surprised me. The the, the how, and also in uh, controlled environments or where there's very much a sense of, are your neighbors think, what would they think And that we see in your novels where people feel that they, they can act out, but like very quietly. Um, so I thought, oh yes, well, America is a society where if told, they, you know, they'll cut their lawn, you know they'll keep it like a certain length. You know, they're, they're, so that really surprised me in terms of um, not setting those obligations and, and, or feeling that the society wouldn't follow them. So I don't know if that's really a correct assessment.
2: Uh, well, I, you know, I think it's it's so complicated. The country is so big and there are so many versions of America and this sort of small town suburban one that I write about really is just one. And, and um, you know, early on, the pandemic was uh, centered on in New York City and Boston and, and you know, the, the really populated Northeast, you know, and and... It was happening in places where people were crowded together um, and now it sort of spread to you know rural America and and the southern states and so I, I it's really hard to say I mean I think what we've discovered from this is is that um, in some serious way we're not particularly organized <laughs> as a, as a society you know we're we're so divided and everything has become a kind of Litmus test of what tribe you're you're part of, you know, and so um, I, I think that will have to kind of inform my writing in the future when I think about uh, you know who we are because I have I have tended to write about small towns and microcosms and um, you know I think that that can be a very revealing way to talk about larger social dynamics. It's certainly manageable. You know, there's a long tradition of the novel of the village or the small town, you know, whether it's Middlemarch or or uh, Winesburg, Ohio or, or um, you know, Faulkner's version of that. They're, they can be regional, um, but they still, I think, just because they're small and they're knowable, they can be really useful for, for storytelling. But I, I do think it's become very difficult to um, figure out ways to depict a, a really large complex society like like America right now.
1: Well, you see, uh, you know, going back to uh, works like um, election or little children where the school stands in for micro, you know, high school stands in, there were, you know, comparisons drawn to you know, elections, larger presidential elections, I believe uh, Tracy Flick was compared to Hillary Clinton. I mean, it's still in our vocabulary now, an ambitious woman and what that is. And so it's interesting, Um, and then little children, which is about adults, but I guess also, I guess adults wearing human bodies, or uh, I guess the metaphor is that we're molded quite young and we may be children just wearing adult bodies sometimes
2: yeah well i think I think that was uh, one of the things that that i I was certain that my characters and this is you know high school really is central to my vision and and one of the things I was saying about the adult characters in little children was that certain emotional baggage that they carried from high school was informing their behavior. They were really trying to. Uh, compensate for, or you know, have have a kind of a happier version of what what they suffered in in high school. They're trying to correct their past, you know, as adults, because somehow high school had hobbled them. Um, and and I do think you know, one of the things, this is a pure demographic generational change. We don't grow up. You know we don't think of ourselves as adults now until we're well into our 30s and yet you know the society sort of is used to thinking of people in their late 20s as as adults but i don't know that they're thinking like traditional adults i think the definition of adulthood has changed quite a bit and the childhood phase of life has stretched out for a you know a longer longer period of time
1: yeah although i can say definitely because i'm dealing a lot with students so they are and as you were well identified, they are stressed out in ways that adults are, but still, yeah, still uh, maturing. Um, and so, in, as you look back on, on yourself, because I know, I guess you said that your writing isn't, you know, very autobiographical, but we always draw on our own stories. As you think about your young self and what traits of the young Tom Perota were there that you could just see, you know what I mean, like. Before the layers and varnish went on, but it's still there. What, what are those things that you identify from?
2: You know, I, I, I think, first of all, I should say um, my writing is probably less autobiographical than some people's, but the longer I do it, the more I see like I'm revisiting certain stories over and over again that, that are very close to, you know, the center of my own personal drama i think um you know i just for instance i've been writing so much about sports uh, in recent years and i i'm i was an athlete for the first half of high school but but so much of my identity and so much of my masculinity was informed by those years when i thought of myself as an athlete you know and i do think it's sort of something that really gets at the heart of you know being a man in america at least in that you know, sort of pre-feminist time when I was growing up, um, and it wasn't pre-feminist in the world, but it was pre-feminist <laughs> in working-class New Jersey. <laughs> you know, it was like um, I grew up in a place that had very traditional expectations in terms of gender and, and sexuality. And, and uh, you know when I got to college there, I suddenly stepped into this much wider world and everything that had seemed self evidently true in the world that I had come from was suddenly up for grabs. And I I think I keep trying to recreate that moment of stepping into a wider world and and finding oneself bewildered and and liberated and challenged and disturbed, you know, all all of those things you see it in, you know, Mrs. Fletcher, for example, you know, when she suddenly uh, against her better judgment and all of her self-knowledge discovers that she's really interested in porn and that it's like shaking up her sense of what's possible in her life. Like th- that's a moment that, um, you know, is uh, me reenacting, I think, the experience of leaving this small, Somewhat insular world, and, and arriving in this bigger, um, threatening, challenging, um, liberating world of uh, of college. You know, I think there's a kind of a opening up, and a vulnerability, and and a kind of uh, transformative potential in those moments that are really, um, you know, that I think is just great for for stories because char- characters need to be in transition, and and that is a very much a transitional moment
1: yeah and in in and also, in Mrs. Fletcher, it's that you're you're coming to terms with I think what a lot of us depending on what generation we are, but um you know the me too and the acceptance of trans people. you have a character, Margot, and a lot of people well what you, it's better to for you to describe in your own words the different assumptions that are being reassessed by the characters,
2: yeah, yeah, I, I, so I mean you got you were you're pretty much there, Eve. Is an empty-nest mommy Fletcher, Mrs. Fletcher of the book, um, and in the first chapter, she brings her son to college and she goes home. She she doesn't have a partner. She's alone in her house. It's a literal empty nest, and um, you know she like a lot of people in moments like this. She has she's full of good intentions. She wants to get out of the house. She wants to meet new people. She wants to expand her mind and the way that she does it is to sign up for community college night school classes. And some of the classes that she wants um, aren't available. And she ends up at, I I believe it's called gender and society. Um, And it's taught by a a transgender woman named Margot, And there's kind of a motley American crew of, of adults and some kids um, in this class. And, and, you know, that book was, conceived of in you know 2013 maybe I started writing it and it was just I felt all this stuff about gender and sexuality I mean everybody did right then it was like uh, Me Too hadn't happened but there was a lot of um, turmoil around sexual assault in college in particular Um, and you know it it really was the, the early shockwaves that led to the Me Too movement. And uh, and then, you know, I remember I was talking to a lot of friends who taught in college and, you know, the issue of pronouns, what was becoming, um, you know, when, when classes would be introduced, people would start to say, I go by they, you know. And a lot of people, like teachers who are my age, were like rolling their eyes a little bit or feeling like, oh, this is some new thing that, you know we have to deal with, and and I was just so struck by you know the passion around um, these changes, you know, and and it really was like this uh, this place where the culture was in, in in turmoil and things were changing. And what I wanted in Mrs. Fletcher was to put Eve and and these other adults into this class. So it was literally a microcosm where where they were confronting this new idea of gender, which is really like changed the society in, in very powerful ways. And in just, it feels like a few years. I mean, it had the the precursor for it, you know, there was a kind of academic discussions of gender that had been going back, you know, 30, 40 years, but suddenly the mainstream culture caught up, you know? And, and um, so in this gender and society class, these middle-aged American adults are suddenly being confronted with, this new way of thinking that kind of shakes up the the most basic concept that they had to organize the world that there are two kinds of people and they're uh, you know you know who they are from the minute they're born, et cetera, et cetera. and uh, you know so Eve is having that kind of intellectual experience at at uh, at the community college and then she's going home and having this other secret. Uh, experience of of looking at porn and, and you know, in all of its complexity, it's not always um, pretty, it's not always ethical, but it's um, affecting her on some very deep level because these she's watching people who are sort of embracing their pleasure in a way that she never really did. And so she's having this whole kind of sexual and intellectual awakening that we usually associate with you know, 18-year-olds going to college, but she's a forty-five-year-old woman who's alone in her suburban house. And she runs a, a senior center. So she's also, you know, surrounded by older people. And that's adding this layer of poignancy and urgency, I think, to her discoveries.
1: And we should also say, I guess, uh, not knowing too much about it, there are different layers of porn. And I guess one of the things that draws her to it is that she has concerns having overheard her son in the intimate moment, let's say. Um, and I guess that he's kind of been raised and uh, even though she's like it's an enlightened household and very, you know, PC, I'm sure, and but his his diet of corn, she's concerned that it's been influencing the way he would treat women.
2: So she's heard him talk to his he she heard through the door he was talking to his girlfriend and and you know, using a very kind of misogynistic version of dirty talk, you know, um, that he clearly learned from porn and she is rightfully upset about that. But she's also herself, you know, feeling very horny. And um, I think what she discovers is that's a lot, you know, and this probably goes for most people, you know, 90% of porn um, does nothing for her. And in fact, some of it offends her and some of it disgusts her, but she, suddenly discovers, you know, the quote-unquote amateur porn, you know, people basically like uploading videos of themselves that they took with their iPhone, and there's something real about it, and, and these people are, to her, they look like normal people, and, and they're not um, in some way meant to be sexual role models, you know, it just looks like, you know, your next-door neighbor uh, having amazing sex, and and... <laughs> you know, or, or not amazing sex, you know. Um, the mediocre sex that's interrupted by a ringing phone or a barking dog, you know. But somehow this um, separation between her and the world of sexual pleasure kind of crumbles a little bit as a result of her watching this stuff.
1: And it's it's something that's interesting to me because of course I live in Paris and I guess our attitude towards relationships and sex are different. And although i I grew up partially in America, so uh it's this divide that maybe I don't think that America is Puritan, but there's something in the roots of american society like and I notice that in in your novels too, it's like oh, you have to have the idea of pleasure is like something so um you know a, you know a mother learning about pleasure like quite late <laughs> and, uh, or having permission, you know like that
2: yeah yeah well the, i mean it's it's um One of the things that at the same time I was, you know, writing about Eve, I was reading about, you know, the hookup culture in American colleges and, you know, kids were having what seemed like a lot, a lot of sex, but it was always, you know, not always, but very frequently drunken sex with people that they didn't really know. and when uh, it was like Peggy Ornstein in Girls and Sex where she would interview a lot of young women about their sexual experiences. Um, They were not talking about a world of pleasure. You know, Um, it it didn't seem very conducive to that. They were drunk, they didn't know this person, they were worried about establishing boundaries. You know, so it's, it's sort of interesting. I mean, I think it's a country, I wouldn't say we're puritanical. We obviously, people have a, you know, or compa- compared to say my parents, exp- their generation's experience where, especially if you were working class Catholic people, you know, um, they didn't have a lot of sexual part. It really was that kind of world where you were expected, maybe you, were, maybe you weren't, but you were expected to be a virgin when you got married and you're expected to have one partner for for your life. So obviously like we've had a sexual revolution. We're not as puritanical as before, but pleasure does seem elusive.
1: Yeah, I know It is interesting. It's interesting the way, and also it's worth noting that as much as. And I do want to speak about the adaptations of your work, but as much as uh, Mrs. Fletcher's uh, a book about f- porn, and also a television series about porn. Um, maybe it's not about porn. There's not really much porn in it. <laughs> it's really, it's not. <laughs> I don't want to disappoint people <laughs> who are going to it.
2: for another reason well we discovered that on screen a little bit of porn goes a long way (laughs) (laughs) yes you know it's 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 so you just can't first of all it's it's a really complicated thing to do filmically you you can't just you know you could go on the internet and find just millions and millions of videos of porn but you can't just put them on your show right you need you would need to find the person who made the video and get their permission. And, uh, you know, that's that's surprisingly hard because a lot of that is pirated porn, right? It was meant to be sold. And then, you know, these aggregators just put it up on the web. So it was, it was like kind of difficult to figure out how to get, especially the kind of porn that Eve is interested in watching, you know, the really real amateur stuff. It was hard to figure out how to get that onto the screen, even though it's ubiquitous, in the or in the real world, there just are legal barriers, you know, in terms of getting it onto your show. But but also then, you know, you're interested in the transformation of Eve, not so much, I think, in the actually seeing the porn, you know, so Catherine, we know she's watching porn. And then it's really about the way that porn informs her um, behavior in the world.
1: Well, it's so interesting just, and, and Catherine Hahn is a great actress. and I think she's just incandescent in that. So it's actually more interesting for me as a non-consumer of porn, um, just to watch her imagining, just to watch her face. You know, the reaction shot is just more interesting. And I think that also speaks something to what the reasons why some women may watch it. It's not the necessarily the same reasons as some men may watch it. Uh, maybe it's like the anticipation or intimacy
2: that happens to have sex in it. <laughs> you know,
1: it's.
2: Just... Yeah. <laughs> no, I think I think that's right. And and you know, it's it's, a, it's another challenge, right, in terms of making a show is that you assume that like some of your viewers might watch porn, some of your viewers might not, some viewers might have really negative feelings about it. Um, in any case, they're watching. You know, most of the time, you know, in their living room, maybe with other people around, it's very different from like, you know, privately watching porn to get yourself aroused for one reason or another.
1: And um yeah, but it's nice because when you have uh books and, and programs like this, it allows us to open up the conversation and not just ignore things. That's all and obviously because you're you're approaching it for, as a literary writer, a literary that's been adapted to television, adapted to film, but it's it's very serious. So it allows us to not avoid these subjects. That is it's a, a huge industry. It's a, you know, it's a something. So,
2: um, yeah, well, let me just say, I, I, I've been writing really about the sexual revolution for a, a number of books. And I do feel like, you know, the ubiquity of porn, which we don't like to talk about in a public way has, has transformed the society. I think it's transformed um, people's expectations of sex. It's transformed um, the way people think their bodies should look. Um, you know, in, in Peggy Orenstein's Girls and Sex, a lot of these girls said, like, they could tell right away if the guy they were with watched a lot of porn because they had these preconceived scripts in their head um, for how a sexual experience should go and what the girls should sound like, you know, and they would, um, they were more interested in sort of choreographing position. You know, just there was just a lot of very intimate stuff that had been affected by by this change. And and, you know, it's hard to talk about because it's kind of under the radar of, of polite society, but it's this um, I think a powerful force. And I was, you know, just trying to find a way as a writer to write about that. And and yeah, I mean I, I do think that's been the this, this center line in a lot of my work is just the way that um, sex and gender have been changing in America during my lifetime.
1: I think it's interesting, um, I want to speak about, because you do inhabit different points of views, and even in Mrs. Fletcher, which is sensibly is about Eve Fletcher, um, uh, You know, you also inhabit the son's point of view, and in other books, you're even, you know, venturing out into 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 others. So, um, I I I like to see. uh, I think that you would address this before that you're you had been more firmly rooted in the male perspective in your earlier books, but now it's I guess it's very more and more towards women.
2: Yeah, and and it, it you know, right? We're at this moment. Again, because of these changes in our society and this focus on identity, which has been you know, really interesting and really empowering in many ways, um, it's affected literature, right? So, so a lot of people have, uh, writers I say mostly a little younger than me, but some of them my age, um, moving away from, I think, you know what you'd consider maybe a 19th century realist orientation, which says the novelist can range widely and imaginatively and, and try and create a portrait of a society, you know, auto fiction has almost questioned the ethics of doing that, right? Do you have the right to try and imagine someone's, someone else's life? Maybe you're better off just sticking close to your own experience and your own identity. You have that authority, you know? But I, I just, I think we have really been committed to this project of, of trying to imagine um, a, a broad range of of viewpoints and and get them talking um or or you know just create that that uh, polyphony of of voices um, because I think there's a range of um, you know well there's just always a range of characters and ideas you know the, the novels are debates in some sense um, and it's hard to do that if you're writing a book with just one character and, and one perspective, I think you often lose that sense of um, life as a form of conversation, debate, etc.
1: Yeah, I think in a way you would be um, I- ignoring or not taking advantages of one of the the uh, the novel form is that you can really go into so many consciousness. You could go into the consciousness of a sparrow or, you know, if you're Talking about porn, you know, the the mattress could be a serving situation, you know. So why not take advantage of that?
2: You yeah, know, no, and again, there there are some wonderful writers who are writing autofiction. What I will say is, for the most part, those books are not dramatic. They're not full of conflict. You know, they they often have a kind of depressed and internalized sort of um, tone, you know, and and. That can get a little suffocating. You see, though the books are often quite short. I think that's, you know, also relates to the difficulty of that. I mean, you know. Um, Except Carl
1: Over oh, yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> That is very, very true. So uh there's always the exception. Um that's just on my mind that 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 you know, I'm so committed to you know, what what I really love to do is is range widely and, and try and find ways to inhabit characters who are, um, you know, different from me and particularly um, women for whatever reason.
0: I'm Alex Barnett, a recent graduate of Northwestern University, where I studied filmmaking, history, and creative writing. Tom Perrotta speaks of his desire to create a polyphony of voices in his novels. And I can't help but think of Mikhail Bakhtin, an influential thinker in my academic and creative life. Bakhtin's theory of the dialogic life of the novel explains the existence and significance of a multi-voiced and ever-growing discourse, polyphony, without needing to create moral equivalencies between equally prominent voices. Great novelists and short story writers publish work with intensely focused voices. Justin Torres comes to mind. I appreciate, however, that Perota continues to channel a litany of voices and perspectives who sound nothing like each other and whose agendas might actively contradict. The ensuing drama of multiple voices pulsing toward and away from each other is clear in a complex book like The Leftovers, but the inclination seems apparent even in Perota's first-person short fiction. His story, The Smile on Happy Chang's Face, features a narrator reckoning with a terrible decision that greatly changes, if not ruins, his relationship with his wife and kids. The narrator expresses guilt and self-pity with such clarity that i initially believed his claim that quote it was like my side of the story had disappeared into some kind of void in reality the narrator side of the story is really a complex blend of social and interpersonal assumptions and faux pas involving masculinity violence and sexual orientation filtered through his own voice the narrator tries to conceal this but perota doesn't as a young writer interested in fiction and the ways that fiction can incorporate theory I enjoy the dialogic nature of Perota's work. When, for instance, I attempt to write a character obsessed with the false interpretation of Hannah Arendt's philosophy, it's through writers like Perota that I can learn to buoy the perspectives at play and de-emphasize my own presence when it might be intrusive. Thank you for listening. If you're just joining us, Mia Funk continues her conversation with best-selling author Tom Perota.
1: Well, it's exciting, because we're trapped for long enough in our own consciousness, so, you know, why not? Want not to be wild? I was wondering then, in terms of, I mean, the leftovers, or, I mean, I don't think you're not religious, but you were raised Catholic, but...
2: Yeah, no, I'm not religious. Yeah.
1: So is it, I mean, in terms of your approach, in terms of your sensitivity to the subject, I mean, how did you... How did you approach it? Did you have to research, or did you call on these things,
2: or? Yeah, so you know, the leftovers emerged in a very direct way from my novel, *The Abstinence Teacher*, which was written, uh, published, I think, in two thousand seven, maybe. And uh, you know, at that time, it was the um, George W. Bush administration, and there was this sense. The culture war at that time was very clearly like a culture war between um, evangelical christians and liberals so that was a case where i you know i wrote a book that tried to in this one small suburban town get at the heart of that divide and and there's a a soccer coach who um is praying with his kids and one of the girls on his team is the daughter of the title character, the abstinence teacher, who has been assailed by this, um, the evangelical church that he belongs to for teaching comprehensive sex education. And so it's, you know, it's trying to get that culture war into this book and, and the coach and, and the abstinence teacher are attracted to each other and, and get to know each other. And, and, you know, that book is so, committed to the idea of like these people seem like enemies but they can actually talk to each other and they can actually be attracted to each other it was a kind of a democratic <laughs> fantasy you know of an america where we all oh, we can actually figure out a way to communicate with each other we're not hopelessly divided and to to write his character i had to do a lot of research on contemporary evangelical christianity and i got in the course of doing that I got very interested in the doctrine of the rapture and and somehow you know that got stuck in my head and you know the rapture has this idea when it happens there's going to be seven years of tribulation on earth you know war and and strife and the antichrist will be around and then you know the second coming will will happen and i was just thinking like what would I do for those seven years? You know, and, and somehow that became the leftovers. But so one book really grew out of another.
1: So also in your writing process, re- research is important, but I think that there's also a, a big a process of discovery where you you haven't plotted it all in advance. You just have a, a an idea. But
2: yeah, uh, you know, I. I usually have a situation rather than a character. I've often been struck by um, hearing other writers talk about this, like I heard a voice. You know, They often hear like a, a voice of a character, but I, I am sort of, I think the origins of my book, books are intellectual. Like I have an idea about the culture war. I wanna write about the effect of porn on people's sexuality. I wanna write about, um, use the rapture as a way to think about grief and collective trauma and, and the way in which, um, you know, religion is born from mystery and, and the need, the human need for a narrative that that explains. So I, I do think I have been writing originally from an intellectual place and then through that, you know, find characters who I can then inhabit. And that becomes really the the most interesting and emotional part of it for me, but but I do start I think with a situation or an idea rather than a character that I want to explore. So I end up being I think I think exploring character becomes the journey of the novel for me.
1: Yeah, but no, I think it's because it makes us feel and and think, and it's a, it's always nice. It's a great combination when those are combined because you're like I'm learning something, but you know I'm drawn, I'm caught up with following the storyline of the characters.
2: Yeah, and, and so one of the things that, that I think that's partly um, why my books tend to sprawl a little bit in terms of characters that I, I do become, once these characters arrive, I become very taken with them and I wanna kind of visit, visit them. And I, I like having a kind of mobile point of view. I, I sometimes imagine like I wanna write a really short, tight book from one perspective because I really love reading books like that sometimes. But I never seem able to write them. I seem to always want to kind of um, get into the heads of as many of my characters as I can.
1: Yeah, and that's great because you could you just see the other possibilities. And then I guess with left, uh, the leftovers, or you've they've, they've been some have been developed beyond the, the blueprint of the book. Yes, that's interesting when your children have children. <laughs>
2: Yeah. And, and I was there for it, you know, in the writer's room with the leftovers. And that was such a an interesting and complicated situation. I've been really lucky in the collaborators that I've had in, in film. Um, you know, Alexander Payne made Election, Todd Field made Little Children. And then I got involved with uh, Damon Lindelof for The Leftovers. And he's, a, he's, you know, he's a really exciting, brilliant writer who's coming at it from a very different perspective than I am. He comes from the world of, uh, you know, comic books and and science fiction and, and just uh, genre storytelling in, in all of its forms, you know, and I, I really come out of the world of realistic fiction. And so it was so interesting to collaborate with someone whose impulses are so different from mine. So I, I you know, when I look at The Leftover, I say, okay, there's this one you know quote unquote supernatural event these people disappear and then nothing it's just back to it's just back to reality and so the people in reality are having to like figure out what just happened to us and you know, science doesn't explain it religion doesn't explain it there's a vacuum of explanation so what do they do and and so i'm like as a writer you know kind of imagining real people in a real world where it just so happens that three years ago, this inexplicable event happened. But Damon's reaction to that story was, well, if this thing could happen, then, you know, anything could happen. And so that the the collaboration on The Leftovers really was like, how can we harmonize these two perspectives? You know, me saying they're back in the real world and Damon saying, no, I think they're, the real world has been utterly destabilized and has all sorts of new possibilities and the the way that we I think figured out how to do it was that I said like all sorts of things can happen but there's always got to be a quote-unquote rational explanation within the story so that that somebody who's rejecting you know Kevin's resurrection <laughs> or something could could have a, a an alternative narrative for that and and the same you'll you'll notice in the very end of the show when Nora tells her story, we decided very purposely not to film it, to, to leave it as a a spoken story. It's a, it's a narrative that you choose to believe or not. The um, The show is not insisting on its reality. It's asking you to take it on faith, which is what religion does. It tells you a story and asks you to take it on faith.
1: So... In these shows, your head writer, are you also operating as
2: showrunner or? So that's, uh, the, in the, um, the Leftovers, Damon was the showrunner. I was in the writer's room, I was an executive producer. We created it together, but he was the ultimate um, arbiter of, of, you know, there has to just be one person who says yes or no. And, and you know, was, it took some doing for the novelist Myself <laughs> to learn how to accept that because when I'm the novelist, I am the arbiter of everything. You know, every word is is mine. And and uh, you know, I think the story for me of doing The Leftovers over those three seasons was just Damon and I learning to really trust each other, and me saying like, all right, this this TV version of The Leftovers is has grown beyond. The novel, *The Leftovers*, and it has gone into storytelling territory. That really, I think, is reflective of Damon's aesthetic more more than my own. And I was almost like having to kind of learn to play in his band.
1: Oh, I really enjoyed the adaptations of your work, and I and I think it's great also that they had the initial, you know, completely developed iteration of novels, you know, as a, you know, so you can go to that it's a secret key and you can find all the other things that won't fit in often in TV or, or definitely in film. Um, and so that's your preferred process. Like you need to write a novel, definitely. Or could you shorthand it and go right to scripts?
0: You know what?
2: I don't, I don't think I could, just because of what I was telling you before, you know, that, the process of writing the novel for me is the process of living with and inside these characters for a year or two years sometimes. And I think it's not like they're born, you know, whole. It's it's really like they emerge. The the, the characters emerge over the course of that, you know, two-year process. And so I don't know how to make that process work within a screenplay. You know, I know there are people who write wonderful screenplays uh, without writing them as a novel first. I just wouldn't know how to do that. My imagination is, it's just so trained to work within the novel writing process. And, and uh, because prose is a very slow medium for me, like I really have to work it over. Um, it just means that I have that investment of time and that investment of time makes the characters feel real to me. I, I was just reading uh, Lily King's novel, Writers and Lovers, and she, it's, a, it's a story about a young woman who's working as a, 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 wait, a waitress in the mid-90s, and she's working on her first novel, and, and it takes her six years, and, and she finishes it, and she's just sort of bereft, you know, and she's trying to write a new novel, and the new characters don't seem real to her. You know, she so misses the other ones, but then she's just remembering... How for most of that process they seemed unreal and flawed, and you know they, you know, that 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 always when you start, there's something just willful about it. I'm gonna make up these people. Mm-hmm. And slowly you those people take on a kind of reality if you're lucky. Um, but I don't know how to shortcut that process of very slowly these characters become real, or or at least um complex and and um, you know worth thinking about.
1: I, I wonder if it was the same for you when, you know when I was growing up and I guess it was because I was so used to you know reading a lot as a kid. And then when I would encounter people and adults, I I, I was I was not suspicious of their intentions, but I always felt that people weren't revealing enough about themselves. Because in books you just got everything. <laughs> these, <laughs> these rich and cheery lives and I just felt everything on the surface was just just not the whole and so i wonder as i as i look at your characters where it feels like you're you're very curious about what's hiding underneath ordinary people you know
2: yeah yeah and and you know maybe this goes back to your original question of you know when i'm writing what's autobiographical maybe there is a sense that like well i know how much i'm concealing at any given moment Or I mean maybe I don't even know how much, but I I know that we're always presenting ourselves to to other people and that our real dramas are in some sense secret dramas. Like like I'm very committed to that idea. Uh, you know, one of the interesting things I will say is I think the younger generation doesn't believe that in the way that like people my age do. You know, so many people lived in closets of sorts. When I was growing up. And now there's there's really a you know a rejection of that. People want to live their truth every minute of, of their lives, you know. And so I wonder what that what that will mean for fiction, you know, because fiction is so much based on people's secrets and and uh, people not being maybe allowed to express themselves in the way that they need to express themselves. Maybe that's a truth about humanity that won't change, but I do feel like um, you know, storytelling will change because there's a different idea of character and identity that, is, that has entered the, the culture right now.
1: It's true. And I also wonder about what, yeah, you know, you can find out what anyone's doing. Yes, it's hard to keep secrets. I mean, you can be off the grid, but there's our, our, our details, where we go, what we like is all being collected. Like we're a data
2: point. We're we're not considered people. I mean, right. I and guess. people are are presenting themselves. They're constructing themselves online. Mm-hmm. I think in a very deliberate way. And I think probably find it harder to part from those ways. You know, like like I I got to college. Nobody knew me there. Mm-hmm. I didn't have a. I had not left a record. <laughs> in in the world, and people from my hometown knew who I was. People in college didn't know who I was. I got, in a sense, a kind of a blank slate in that place. Um, I don't know how many people don't really have blank slates, (laughs) you know, the the internet uh, doesn't allow it. Um, So, you know, again, writers will react to the social circumstances that are around them, and, and there will be great works of fiction, exploring you know this particular world but I, i'm just so aware of i think um so many of the ground rules that i took for granted as a young writer i no longer really apply
1: yes it's true it's it are serious questions and and i come across i have a certain generation gap with the students that i'm working with um you know because there's this ever this um kind of a presence of marketing that even very young children have uh, and to see how many follows they have or how many. So I think that there's this anxiety and how I think that it was possible. I, I will not say, I don't know if you are nostalgic, but I look back and I feel like I was lucky to have a certain kind of childhood, where, as you said it, it could be anonymous. I wasn't a concern. I didn't know really how it was perceived so much, you see.
2: And I don't even want to place a value judgment on it because yeah. I, it's hard to know. You know, there there are probably ways in which, for a lot of people, especially like say you were I, I wasn't gay, I didn't have to hide that essential part of my life. Say, but so you know, there are just huge changes now in in the way that like, you know, gay kids can flourish, whereas in my time, that's
1: nice. Yeah, you
2: we're know, tormented. You know, there are definitely ways in which the the current situation is is better. And if, you know, the internet allows you to see that there's a community beyond the place where you live, you know, but that said, I I do think, um, it, it does lock you into an identity sometimes, and, and it does make you feel watched all the time. You know, um, I think a world without privacy is, is probably scarier to me than it is to a lot of younger people. I just think they'd never really imagined there was a world without privacy or, or they certainly didn't experience one. Um, you know, uh, in The Lady with the Pet Dog, Chekhov, um, there's a moment when um, the main character who's having an affair is is sort of, you know, looking around and realizing that, you know, he just basically says, people live their real lives in secret, and which is the reason why civilized people are so determined uh, to protect their privacy. And, you know, he's obviously, he's he his real life is he loves this woman who's not his wife and he's having to live with his wife, you know? So he, he really is like his most serious emotional story is happening and he can't share it with the people around him. Um, but, you know, I just, it'll be very interesting to uh, see what fiction becomes in a world where, um, Secrets are in short supply.
1: Mm. I do want, to, I don't want to forget to ask, because you've spoken, two things, but you've spoken about your collaborators behind the scenes, not so much as the collaborators who then, you know, for screen, in, uh, film and uh, television, have interpreted your words and, and how, it doesn't change the original novel, but it becomes something else.
2: Yeah, well, just, just you know, one of the great things about collaborating is it really teaches you who you are, <laughs> you know, so, so like one thing I, I notice, like if I read the book election, it's not as funny as Alexander Payne's movie. Um, And Alexander Payne's movie is a really hard edge satire. Yeah. And the book election is not, the book election is written, you know, mostly as a comic novel, but a, but a, a realistic novel it takes all the characters seriously. Um, and it doesn't have like, I think the stylistic flourishes of, of the film. And, you know, a lot of people love the film in a way that they don't love the book. And I, I understand why it's an amazing, it's an amazing movie. Um, but one of the things it has to do to function at that level of, of satire is to simplify the, the characters, you know, and to simplify the tone little children, the movie is is in, intensely dark and really darker than the book. The book has a kind of comic energy to it as well. And I think the, the truth was my writing has this kind of hybrid of, of comic observation and darkness. And I think film needs a kind of a purer tone. Mm-hmm. And so each one of those filmmakers uh, made a choice, you know, Todd to sort of, go to the darkest heart of that book alexander to go to the funniest heart of of that book and to to you know eliminate or minimize the uh, material that complicates that vision so i i did um learn i think about the tone and the balance that i can strike in fiction that may not um work on screen but also also just to see like oh there there was like i mean it's it's wonderful to see somebody take your book and then give it back to you as this other kind of story that you recognize as your own but also has entirely different qualities and you know is funnier or more intense than the story that you wrote.
1: yeah, it's always interesting to see those possibilities and the uh, the actors who interpreted them I mean you had a great actor uh actors uh so
2: yeah that I mean that's a whole other part of it, you know, that, that's the thing I've really come to love about, um, you know, working in TV and film is just to see what Kate Winslet did with Sarah in Little Children, to see what Reese Witherspoon did with Tracy Flick, to see what Carrie Coon did with Nora Durst, but what uh, Catherine Hahn did with Eve Fletcher. I mean, it's kind of an extraordinary bunch of, of performances.
1: Yeah, it's really I've really enjoyed them. You've been because I know some writers are like, oh. <laughs> they've been they've not been fortunate in the adaptation.
2: I know, I know. Well, that I I don't know if it's just been good luck on my part or or something else. I mean, it, it's certainly there's some element of of luck, but it it also is, you know, finding those collaborators who um, are really connecting with the material and some. Powerful way,
1: yeah. You you caught their imagination, and then they they fell in love in that way. So that's nice.
2: then you can. I, think, I do think you know, a lot of novels are maybe more loosely plotted than mine. And that's right. The reason why my stories often can do well on screen. I think they're tightly constructed as narratives. Mm-hmm
1: but it's great that the literary sense comes across because sometimes you know sometimes so much of the the tone or the voice or voices in it are, are lost through that so it's, it's nice I, I, yeah um i also want to talk about you know teachers I, but i know you went to yale and uh, then syracuse and mm-hmm. uh, tobias wolf who's also participated in this i mean i don't know what teachers were you know important to you uh what books were foundational i mean, as you were
2: Um, You know, I'll go back to high school because, you know, there wasn't a lot of contemporary fiction in my house. And like my, you know, we were readers, you know, my father was actually a mail carrier and he would bring home magazines that were, you know, people had moved and their magazines hadn't been forwarded. So we had, we had like reading material in the house, but we didn't have, you know, bookshelves with with contemporary fiction on them. And so it's very much um, at the, mercy is the wrong word. I, I, I relied on my high school teachers for um, recommendations and and they gave me great ones. You know, I, one of my high school teachers, you know, said, read Moby Dick, read The Magic Mountain. Another one said, read Raymond Chandler. I think you'll really like the voice in this, you know, and that was like, I, my head exploded when I read Raymond Chandler. So I was getting this in high school, but I was also one of those kids who, if you said, Hey, you should read a hundred years of solitude. I would go out and read a hundred years of solitude. And I think once my teachers realized that, then they were full of, you know, read this, read that. Um, And so I had any number of great teachers when I got to Yale, I was very lucky to have a writing workshop with, The writer Thomas Berger, who is not so well known now, he he wrote um, Little Big Man. That's mainly how he's remembered. He's one of the great American comic novelists, and and uh, he was the first real writer that I, you know, that I spent time with, and and uh, you know I just really soaked up all of his. I mean, he was such a dedicated. Productive novelist, and I think I think that was really what I was trying to understand at that point. Like, how is it possible to write a book? You know, and here was this man who had written, probably in the end, wrote twenty novels or something. And and um, we corresponded for some years after after I left. Um, he, he, I don't know that he's um, influenced me that much. His writing is very in a kind of a Nabokovian that sort of was, was his influence as a certain comic, but highly um, elaborate style. Yeah, but he's, he's a wonderful comic writer. Um, and But then it, at the end of college, I picked up Raymond Carver's, will you please be quiet, please. And uh, it just blew my mind. I, you know, I just was one of those Carver acolytes, you know, and that wasn't, um, was kind of a dividing line among my generation of writers. You know, some people were like the David Foster Wallace um, and, you know, uh, Jonathan Franzen and Jeff Eugenity. You know, there was a, a, Jonathan Lethem, there was a kind of a maximalist school that was coming out of the postmodernism of, of the sixties and seventies. And I was much more a part of, I think what was a, a minimalist reaction to that that you know Raymond Carver was really important to me in that sense um I went to Syracuse because Carver was teaching there and Tobias Wolff happened to be um he was the he was you know in my mind then he was the other teacher he uh-huh. was a guy who had written one collection of stories which I thought were wonderful but Carver was Carver had only written a few collections, but he was a giant to me. Um, though I never ended up studying with him because he um he got sick and and retired very shortly after I arrived there. But but Tobias Wolfe became um, you know, very influential teacher. Um a writer named Douglas Unger was also there and was a great, a great teacher. Um and that's you know an intense relationship when you're in a small MFA program. And that is your your audience, you know, and, and uh, Tobias Wolf wrote this boy's life while I was there. And that book remains an enormous touchstone for me. It's so moving and it's so funny. And, and I was very informed by that um, aspiration, which was to, to be able to write something that's funny, that has real emotional range. And, you know, it was great to have a teacher right in front of me who was doing that. You know, I remember him reading sections of that that book to us and, and just having this sense of like, this is something really special. This is, um, it's happening right in, front, right in front of me.
1: That's true. And I think also something that you share because you had spoken a little bit about not being moralizing, but being able to discuss moral ideas. Um, so that, um, and that's something he discussed <laughs> as well. It's not, you know, not being afraid to bring those, you know, into, I mean, because they concern us all.
2: Yeah, and and I think I think one of the things that is wonderful about Toby's work is that um, the moral judgment is often a, a focused on oneself. <laughs> you know, it, it's a lot of his narrators are, you know, who are in their autobiographical work. So he's looking at himself and sort of exposing his his own bad behavior. And I think um, it's just so much more interesting to do it that way than to you know, find a straw human over there and criticize their bad behavior. You know, it's, it, I always feel like I don't want to be addressing my characters from a position of moral superiority. You know, My character, so there's, you know, I mean, I think for Tobias Wolfe, it's coming from an explicitly Christian place. I think I. I like the universal, Morality of Christianity. I'm not a Christian, but at this idea that we're all sinners, we're all broken, um, you know, that's just at the heart of of my my writing. You know, I just, I'm not interested in characters who aren't flawed. I don't believe they exist. (laughs) You know, people's flaws are what make them who they are and what um, create the space for change and, and story.
1: Mm-hmm. And this boy's life, I think, was at the beginning of many memoirs, you know, published afterwards. You saw that as a way forward. But would you ever consider writing a memoir? I mean, in that kind of...
2: You know, I, I, have, I haven't been drawn to it. Um, yeah. and But that's not to say I won't, especially as I get older. I'm just not, you know, like the closest book for me is, is when we haven't mentioned Joe college oh, yeah. is an autobiographical novel about um, me going to Yale. And I think there might've been a memoir version mm-hmm. of that, you know, I, I, I changed a lot of, a lot of details and, and made it a, a novel, but that, that did, you know, stick closely to the the facts of that part of my life. You know, I, I yeah, I, I have, I have never had the, memoir writing urge i think um i think if you do it right you'll probably hurt a lot of people's feelings <laughs> and, uh, yes. and I don't have the courage to do that i just don't want to do it you know
1: yeah i yeah you don't you don't have as much freedom you know so it's nice when you can draw on but you can put other people's names and and tell another tr- tell the truth but you know and
2: uh, yeah no it's it's really it really is that it's it's um it takes guts to tell the truth. <laughs> I don't know if I have those guts yet.
1: And the other thing is that, you know, that's your truth. And then you've got other people. Well, this is our truth. Mm-hmm. And then what someone said to me that was nice, he said, right, live the of eventful life. But he said that he didn't feel at liberty to do it because, well, those characters are, those, they're not characters, they're people. They're alive. And so it's their story to tell their story.
2: So I, you know, it's it's a respect thing as well. Yeah, no, I I, I think um, you know Toby has some very interesting stories about you know going through that experience, particularly you know his mother reacting to her portrayal. Though you know he was very worried when the movie came out, and she just said, oh <laughs> she slept with Robert De Niro. <laughs> <laughs>
1: But that that makes up for some things. Yeah, yeah. He, he did speak about it because then filmmakers do can take certain liberties, you know, for the sake of storytelling. So yeah,
2: again, and and so that I think that um, you you might as a writer feel like if it's your fiction that that it's fair game and it's okay if people depart from it, but if it is your life and the life of uh, lives of other people, you know, I think it's it's um, much harder to give up to allow that to be fictionalized in ways that, that you can't control. All
1: right. Well, you know, before we go, cause I've just, actually i just recording a podcast with students where we've been asking them about, if they have a wish for the future. And this is something that's been on our minds and you began by this uh, podcast uh, interview with the uh, reading from your work, uh, the leftovers about a period of crisis. So I guess, you know, it's an educational initiative and we are thinking about the future and the kind of world we're, leaving the next generation. I don't want to say what you wish for the future would be, but with our current systems, as they are, there are some changes that need to be made. What are some things that you would like to see happen so that we could pass on a better world?
2: Oh boy, there are so many, you know. Um, I mean, I think we should start by respecting science again. Um, I've just been so shocked by I will say just the, the sheer stupid willful stupidity um that has made this particular crisis worse and and you know obviously is intimately connected with our future response to climate change. Um, if we can't even agree that what is happening is happening, <laughs> we can't do anything about it and And I think we've seen it um, in real time. In terms of you know, our leaders and half of half of our society just sort of rejecting the seriousness of of what's happening and rejecting um, the advice of people who know better than they do, um, and we have a media environment that um, creates you know false, harmful realities that lots of people embrace. To and and I think it's. Damaged us deeply as as a society and and um, i'm I hope that the fallout of this particular the pandemic will start to erode That anti-science Attitude that I think is doing a lot of damage and we'll do even more if we can't act to um, Address the climate change crisis.
1: Yes, I think um well, I think that your, your writing has, um, points a way forward to uh, identifying some uh, follies and uh, the fallibility of people, the flawed people, as you say flawed, they're all flawed characters in a way. So, um, yes, that's that's my wish too. I hope that we may get through this, and I, I know we will, but I'm looking forward to more Tom Perota novels and adaptations. And... Uh, We'll be indulging in some of them during this little pause that we have. So I want to thank you, um, Tom Perota, for your stories about uh, inviting us into your imaginative world and your stories about longing, restlessness, tensions and desires that exist beneath the surface in school and suburban life. Um, thank you for adding your voice to the creative process.
0: Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate Interviews Producer on this podcast was Alex Barnett. Digital Media Coordinator is Yu Young Lee. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Anadolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. Has this interview sparked your creative process? If so, submit your creative works to submissions at creativeprocess.info for an opportunity to be included in the projection elements of our exhibition Traveling to Leading Universities or published on our website, www.creativeprocess.info. Want to get involved in exhibitions or interviews? Email us at team at creativeprocess.info.